Uh, awesome. Welcome everybody for week 22, I believe, of the Habura, which is brilliant. Um, just some housekeeping. Um, I had mentioned that we were editing the first edition of our quarterly journal. The design is actually complete now. The editing is complete now. So we're pretty much good to go for launch before Hanukkah. Uh, the journal will feature an introductory essay by the Rosh Bet Midrash Rav Dweck. Uh, also features an essay by Diane Livnat of the Sephardi Bet Din. Our full curriculum for the next quarter will be in there. And of course, we have 16 essays written by 16 of the Talmidim um, on the 16 Hachamim who represent the ethos of the Habura. So it's kind of having essays on our wall of fame or dream team, if you will, of Hachamim. Uh, we're asking everyone to please send a list of the synagogues around you who would be interested in us sending them the PDF of the journal or the link to the journal so they can share it with their community in their weekly pre-Shabbat email. So if you're interested, please message me privately in the chat so we can grab your email address and uh, get that ball rolling. Next week's Habura will be the final shiur in our series on Sephardi Teshubot for this year. Uh, Rav Duak will be addressing the topic of leniency in Halakha as per Harambam's writings. The week after that, we are extremely honored to be able to have Professor Zvi Zohar back again. Um, his first year was, uh, by all means, uh, some called it life-changing. Uh, this time he'll be giving a shiur on the approach of Hacham Israel Moshe Hazan, who is a former Sephardi chief rabbi of Rome and Egypt. Uh, all the updates will be via the WhatsApp group, so please stay tuned. Moving on to tonight's very, very relevant shiur. Uh, given by what I call a very relevant rabbi. Uh, what do I mean by this? Uh, something that I felt and uh, is something I've discussed before is that it's not uncommon to sit with uh, a rabbi and feel like you're hanging your cloak of reality at the door. Because um, as I said, it's not very common that we have rabbis who are very, very sensitive to what's going on in the world, very receptive to HaKadosh Baruch Hu's world and trying to see um, what we can learn from it through the lens of Torah. And just spending, uh, like I do, uh, just a little bit of time on uh, Rav Milanchik's website, which I highly recommend everyone go on, ravsam.com, so R-A-V-S-A-M.com. You get to see the vast array of topics that the Rav is dealing with. And it's really an honor and pleasure to be able to host somebody like that, because as I said, it's, 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 it's very rare currency uh, in today's day and age. And uh, we're very, very lucky to have Rav Milanchik here tonight. Rav Sam is a rabbinic fellow at Eretz Chemda Institute in Yerushalayim. He holds a BA in philosophy and psychology, earned his semicha from Judith Lady Montefiore College here in London, originally from Chicago. Uh, he came to London, as I said, to, to, to gain semicha, and now he's made Aliyah, where he is obtaining his advanced semicha from the chief rabbinate. Rav, the stage is yours. Thank you very much for being here tonight. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Sana. Um, so uh, I'll also do a bit of housekeeping just to keep in the theme. Uh, firstly, thank you to Sana and, and the rest of the members of, uh, of the Chabura for organizing this, um, for keeping up such a strong and, and vibrant uh, community. Um, it's really a pleasure to see. And um, it's something that was missing when I was in London. So I'm, I'm glad to see that hopefully when I get back to London, uh, uh, it, it'll be thriving. Um, before I start, I just want to say a few words. I know that Rabbi Dweck is not here, but he is the Rosh Midrash, so I want to just say a few words of Hakarat Tov to him. Uh, hopefully, it will trickle back. 
Um, and and ba basically the idea is that he is um, really the first person who showed me the vibrancy of Torah in the real world. That uh, as Sinas so eloquently put it, you don't have to check your cloak of reality at the door when you are learning Torah, when you're teaching it, when you're studying it, but rather that, um, um, I'm not even sure if this is a formulation, but it may as well be that the author of the Torah is also the author of, of the world. Um, and that um, philosophy, that idea is sort of sits at the heart of um, what it means to me to be uh, Jewish, to learn Torah. So really um, everything that I am in terms of Torah stems from, from Rabbi Dweck. Um, so there's not really too much I can say to, to uh, exaggerate that. Um, so a really big uh, ha uh, um, sense of hakarat tov that I feel towards him and you know, by extension towards all of you who are, are spreading his message. So tonight's show, before I just before I share the source sheet, I just want to explain the basic idea. Um, this this idea is an idea that for me undergirds uh, all of what it means um, um, to teach and learn Torah. Uh, the idea um, essentially is a question of of skepticism. It's a question of how do we know what we know. It's a question of, epistem of epistemology and um, the idea that, that you don't need um, to, to build buildings of fantasy and illusion uh, in order to serve God well. And all you really need to do is listen to what God is asking of you. And, uh, and this idea that, that it's actually, in my mind, um, very important, even critical to cut away all the chaff uh, so that we can get at at the kernel of, of the service of God that sits at the middle. Um, so I'm just going to share, share the source sheet now. Um, can everybody see it? Yep. Yes. It's Excellent. also in the okay. chat. Great. So the shear has three parts. What we first need to understand is um, what are we in for? What are we doing here? What is the purpose of of keeping Torah, why are we invested in this uh, uh, to begin with, okay? Once we understand why we're invested in it, we can then move on to understanding how we go about uh, performing that investment, how we go about um, uh, acting out that relationship uh, that we're a part of. And the third bit is really um, a, a tool and even some words of caution um, about uh, that we can use to sort of cut away at those things which are getting in the way of what we're supposed to be doing. So let's start out, this, the first source is, and now I could have brought, you know, basically three quarters of the Torah says it's the exact same message, but this summed it up very nicely. Uh, the Pasuk says like this, Im Hashem says to the Bnei Yisrael, this is in the middle of, um, of a, of, a, of a whole dialogue that Moshe is, is transcribing from God to the Jewish people. Uh, and God tells him how he loves them and he took them out of Egypt and he took them on the wings of angels. Um, and then he says to them, but listen, okay, what, what I'm asking you for is tishmeu bekoli. Listen to what it is that I'm telling you to do, right? I'm saying, if you listen, im, im shama tishmeu bekoli, if you listen to what I'm saying, and you keep my brit, whatever that brit is that we're going to see. There's one in Arsinai, there's one in Moab. We're not going to go into those details, but essentially you keep the Torah as I'm giving it to you. Then, 
if you are keeping the Torah, you're creating this relationship with me, then of course you're going to be important to me. You're going to be the most important to me because you're the one who's going to be the closest to me, right? So, you know, you can have a friend uh, who's very close to you and you can have your wife or your husband who's, who's qualitatively in a different place because that wife or husband has a different relationship to you than any of your friends do. And that's what Hashem is telling us here. If you are invested in this relationship with me, uh, then then you're going to be this, this nation, uh, uh, this, this partner of mine uh, in, in, in the world. And Chacham Faur teases out the point that I, and he makes it so eloquently. He says like this, source number two, peculiar to Jewish monotheism is, is its insistence on monolatry. The one God may be worshipped only as prescribed by the law. Okay? As the morality described above, he's talking about morality and where it comes from. The religious ceremonies of the law are fundamentally arbitrary. They are rather forms, they are rather norms of conduct mutually agreed upon by God and Israel. What Hakam Faur is saying here can't be overstated, and that is that nothing done in a religious context, nothing can have any meaning when it comes outside of the context of the covenant. If it's coming outside the context of the Berit, it doesn't mean anything. Why? Because, it, because it's all arbitrary. Okay? The entire system is arbitrary. God made it up. And so God says to you, okay, I want you to strap some leather boxes onto your arms uh, and your forehead. Sure, if that's what you want, right? You know, you could tell me to, you know, I don't know, grab a branch and a lemon and start waving it around for eight days a year. Okay, I'll do that too, right? Whatever we're doing only takes on um, a sense of meaning within the context of that relationship. If it's outside the context of that relationship, then, then it's, it's purely solipsistic. It's self-serving. It has nothing to do with God, right? You know, when we create religious notions that aren't connected to this agreement to this relationship between the two of us, then, then it, it, they're worthless. And they, they might even be worse than worthless. We'll see in a few minutes. A great example that I like to use to, to describe this idea um, uh, is uh, a, a, a man and a woman are going on a date. So the man brings the woman chocolates. It's their first date together, brings her chocolates. And she says, oh, thank you so much. You brought me these chocolates, but I'm allergic to chocolates. Maybe bring me flowers next time. Okay, no problem. Yeah, okay. He shows up the next day or the next date, whenever that is, and he has more chocolate. And so she says, you know, maybe you didn't hear me last time. I'm allergic to chocolate. You know, this isn't necessarily the right gift. And he keeps doing this date after date. And so eventually she's like, I can't, you know, she breaks up with a guy. But she says to him, you know, it's exit interview. She says to him, why? I have to understand. Why did you keep bringing me chocolates? Like, what's wrong with you? He says, I don't, what, what do you mean? I grew up that, you know, chocolate is how you spoil a woman. And this is what I think it means to be a relationship. So I'm going to do it. We see the ridiculousness of such a point, right? You're not bringing chocolates because this is how you think it ought to be. You're bringing chocolates to give them to the other person. So you need to give to the other person what they want. And so what Hashem is saying is, I want you to keep the Torah. I don't want you to keep your version of the Torah. I want you to keep the Torah we agreed on. So now that we understand that we have to keep the Torah that we agreed on, because that's the, that's the agreement, that's the, that's the relationship, that's the covenant, okay? What is the Torah that we agreed on? So again, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm 
cutting down an enormous body of uh, an enormous body of literature uh, into very few key sources, which I think um, put this idea forward very clearly. Uh, so if I've left something out, please do let me know. And if you, obviously, if you have questions, right, cut in at any time. So the Rambam in, in the introduction to the Yad HaChazaka um, um, uh, beautifully lays out his philosophy of halacha. He, he lays out how he sees the halachic system as having developed. Um, and he explains to us um, a, a, a bit about authority, you might say, or about, about how the Torah is taken from the Torah Shebikhtav, right, the written word in front of us, um, uh, the consonants in, in the language of Chachamvur, right, the consonants of the Torah, and how we turn them into words and actions and, and meaning, how we, the, the process of interpretation, which we call Torah Shebaal right, the oral Torah, the, the code to the Torah, as it were. And I'll, I'll explain what I mean by that in a second. So just look here, he says in source number three, we're in the first paragraph, so you have a, a, a large body of literature. You have the Mishnah, you have the Gemara, you have the Tosefta, you have the Sifra, the Sifrei, uh, and all these other various Tanaitic and, Amor, and Amoraitic works. Okay? So first of all, it says the Rambam, okay, you want to know how to, how to serve God, you need to know where to look. Where do you look? You look in the Mishnah, you look in the Gemara, both Gemaras, the Yushami, the Bavli, we'll see exactly which one is more authoritative than the other one. You have other bodies of, of work that you can look to. But essentially, you're looking to a particular interpreted tradition uh, that's come down from Moshe, and this is very important for the Rambam, Ish, Mipi, Ish, okay, and he lists twice uh, in, the, in, the, in the introduction, the order, he goes once up and then once backwards, okay? Very important. This is a unbroken chain of interpretive tradition from Moshe to Ravina and Ravashe, which we'll see in a few minutes there, that they are the end of the, this tradition and why that's relevant. So he says, um, it, we're just skipping this ellipsis here. V'chol be'din sh'amad achar gemara so you have these batei din, okay? Not the authoritative batei din of the Sanhedrin, but you have batei din in, you know, uh, one in Italy and one in France and one in America, whatever. All these are batei din, okay? And they make laws. They make decrees, they make laws, they make minhagim, all these different things for their countrymen, for other people's countrymen. What's clear? They weren't accepted as authoritative by all of Israel. Okay. Okay. This is important, right? This idea that we're there's no misora anymore. There's no tradition because of the difficulty that we went through. Uh, um, you know, historically, we were hounded and chased and destroyed and 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 etc. And so, you know. Um, the interpretive tradition of the Sanhedrin was lost. And therefore he says, uh, So you have the Sanhedrin was already at this point uh, kaput, 
Okay, they no longer were in existence even for a few generations before the end of the Gemara. And this Beitin, whoever, whichever Beitin is telling you what to do, is are called Yichidin. They're called individual Beitin. They don't have this authority. You're not allowed to force one person to follow another person's halacha. I don't live in your town. I'm not bound by your Beit Din. I'm not bound by your Rabbanim. Leave me alone. Okay? Your tradition, your interpretation is not mine. And therefore he says, we're not, we're not allowed to be kofi. You can't um, uh, force people to keep the, the halacha. He says, the same thing goes, in the Mad Me'achad Ha'geonim, so he's saying, so you have one godol in one generation says something, okay? And he thinks that this is the halacha. And then you have another guy comes along after him and he thinks that this is the halacha, right? And they're both arguing very clearly, right? They're arguing on precedent, okay? The Gemara is the precedent. They're arguing based on precedent. You don't have to listen to the first guy who, you know, he doesn't get precedence because he happened to live 200 years before you and didn't have indoor plumbing. That, that's, not, that's not what counts. What counts is, uh, uh, okay, you have to go with the person who you think makes the best argument legally, according to the legal constitution that we have, which is the Gemara, the, 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 the legal body of law, the precedent that we have. If it doesn't match that, it doesn't count. Okay, so he says, and this is very important. The last two Amorayim, the ones who, who maybe they edited the Gemara, maybe they only edited the, the opinions of the um, Amorayim themselves, but actually the, the Stam of the Gemara, which is like the, um, the, Amor, the, the Aramaic, in between those statements, wasn't edited by them, whatever, that's a, a machloket, but either way, they were the last authority, says the Rambam. They were the close of the Ma'atikim, the people who had a, a straight line to Moshe Rabbeinu of the Torah Shabbatah. What does this mean? Simply, the way I would put it is like this. Um, you know, you are a, um, you're a, an English code breaker, okay? And, and you're, you know, you get in, you get in a, a piece of German code. Um, and the German code says, I'll meet you in the park uh, next Tuesday with my dog, Sally. So you understand that there's no park, there's no dog, and there's no next Tuesday, right? These are all codes. They mean something else than what it is that they're saying. And what you need is an enigma machine. You need a machine that's going to get to the message underlying what, what is being said in this, in this code. Okay, and if you were to take the code at its face value, not only would you be wrong, you'd be stupid, right? This, this is not, you know, there's no, there's no useful information here, okay? This is the Ma'atikim Torah Shabbat The Chachamim had a tradition of what was allowed to be interpreted, what wasn't allowed to be interpreted, how to use language, to interpret the Torah and how not to use language, right? Chacham Faur says in the beginning of Golden Doves, it's the opening sentence. Rabbinic interpretive tradition is idiosyncratic. Okay? It's unique in interpretive traditions. And, and, and because of that, once it's lost, okay, it can't be reconstructed in any authoritative way. Now, this is good and it's bad. Okay? 
it's bad, it's bad for all the reasons that we know it's bad. It's bad because I want to know, okay, what the deen is about electricity on Shabbat. I don't want somebody to make some halakhic argument, which, you know, to be honest, doesn't convince him and doesn't convince me. Okay? I want to know what the deen is. What would the Sanhedrin say if they were around here? Would they make electricity also? I think they would. But I don't have that authority to do it. Nobody else does either. I want to know how they would respond to having internet. Okay? Without a filter. Well, how would they deal with that? Would they say, oh, it's a takana that everybody has to have internet without a filter or no? Who knows? There's so many questions that I want to ask. But there's nobody who can answer them authoritatively. So it's bad. Okay, we say every day, three times a day, we want our shoftim to come back because we want uh, uh, on these issues to have clarity. Now, again, it's important to understand that I'm not saying central government is important. I, I'm the last guy to tell you that central government is important. It's bad. Okay, but the Sanhedrin wasn't necessarily central government, right? There was, uh, and this is really a little bit off topic about Shio, but I'm, I'll just mention it very briefly. You had, um, uh, essentially concentric circles of government. You had the local government, the Beidin of that neighborhood or that town, depending on the size, okay? And then you had the Beidin of the Machos, like the area, and then you had a larger Beidin, and then you larger, and, until you got to, you know, depending on how you broke up the country, until you got to the Sanhedrin. And at every, every stage, if you had a question, you just went to the higher guy. You went to the net, you know, you didn't go straight from circuit court to uh, Supreme Court, okay? So, but again, I, I want to know the answer to these questions. So it's bad. We don't, we don't have this ability. On the other hand, okay, it's good in that it allows um, um, for a much more robust um, relationship to the text. Okay. So now, you know, anybody, any Jew who wants to know what the halacha is, okay, he needs to go to the texts. There's no longer an authority with Simicha, who can tell him, yes, this is chad v'chalak, chad this is exactly what the Torah wants from you. How do I know? I have an interpretive tradition. We don't have anybody like that. There's nobody I can turn to. So therefore, it increases automatically, increases engagement with Torah, because now I want to know what the halakha is. I have no right to rely on what my rabbi says, because he might be wrong. And he has no authority to tell me what to do. Right? And not even as the I have authority, I have I have a commandment, I have a mitzvah from Hashem to learn Torah. So I need to take responsibility for myself. So it's good. So again, you have these uh, uh, balancing effects. Either way, what we see is that for anybody to come along after the close of the Gemara and to tell you that you must do something religiously is automatically invalid. Okay? Who are you to tell me what I have to do religiously? Leave me alone. I'm not interested in what you have to say. If you speak to me in terms of making an argument and trying to explain to me what to do and trying to convince me that this is what the Torah wants and I'll read your argument and I'll decide, yes, I want to do it, no, I don't want to do it. That's one thing. But you don't have a right, no rabbi has a right to come along and say, this is how it must be done. Okay? And so already we're seeing the inkling and, and, and really I wanted to title this year uh, how, how did we title it? God, reality, and, and something else. I wanted to Abraham's title, razor, God, reality. Yeah, I wanted to title it Abraham's razor, a religious service of God. Not a religious, irreligious. Because I think that that's the key here, right? We're not interested in religion. 
When I'm interested in doing things to do them, right? Uh, that's not the point here. The point here is to be involved and invested in a relationship. And, as, and, and, and because I don't know what that relationship is anymore, it, it, it was frozen uh, at the end of the Talmud, I now have to figure that out for myself. And that's dangerous for me, okay? And it has asymmetric rewards. What do I mean by that? If I get it right, then I get it right, right? Fantastic, I did what God wanted me to. If I get it wrong though, I'm, I'm slipping into very, very dangerous territory, right? The, the, the danger of getting it wrong far outweighs the dangers of getting it right. What do I mean? Look at the Mishnati Shari. This is from the first chapter. And this is a little bit uh, uh, difficult to translate uh, as a running translation in Hebrew, so I'm going to read the whole thing and then I'll explain what he means. So he's saying like this. You only get out of any given system in proportion to what it is that you put in. Okay? And what he's saying is, therefore, any little difference in what I put into a system will affect maybe even wildly the output that I will get from that system. Okay, so I'll give you an example from uh, the scientific world, right? Edward Lorenz uh, uh, was, was one of the first people to, uh, one of the major contributors to chaos theory, okay? And, and he made his discovery about the butterfly effect um, by accident, okay? He was running weather simulations on his computer and he, you know, these are all obviously mathematical, you know, numbers. They're not, there's no graphics. There's no GUI. This is, this is, you know, 1961. So we're talking about, you know, they may as well be chiseling into the computer screen. Um, uh, and he gets a six digit, a decimal with six digits. I think it's five, six, oh, seven, six, one, or something, seven, two, one, something like that. Fine. He wants to, he, he, he takes a number and re-inputs it into the system, expecting to get the same result. He comes, he go, you know, he leaves his computer to run, he goes and gets a cup of coffee, he comes back, and it's a wildly different weather pattern, right? It's something he never dreamed of seeing. And he's like trying to figure out what happened. Well, I just put the same numbers in, I'd say it should be the same thing. And what he understood, what he realized was that he the second time when he copied the numbers, he he only put the first three decimal places in. He missed out the, the last three decimal places, and it made this enormous difference. And from there he went on to, to uh, you know uh, um, develop this theory. The point being that when you change the inputs, you don't know where the outputs are gonna get you, okay? And this is all the more so when we're talking about the divine covenant. God told you what to do. Do those things, don't do something else. You don't know what's gonna happen, right? You could, you could uh, um, you know, be editing a gene with CRISPR and all of a sudden the kid's gonna come out with an arm in his head. You have no idea, right? The second, third, you know, the, the, the second and, and, and third and fourth and fifth order effects of, 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 of not keeping the mitzvot correctly. These are things that are unknowable to us, but they can be detrimental. 
And it's important, and here I'm going to emphasize the thread that's running throughout the entire shiur is, is that these things are unknowable. And the question is, what do you do when something is unknowable? Okay? And I think, and I'm going to try and explain in the second and third parts of the shiur, when, you, when something is unknowable, you just don't, you don't, you don't act. Shevat HaSadif. Better not to do anything than to do something wrong. Because the second that you do something wrong, okay, and you, you know, it might be, you know, and I'm, this is total conjecture, has no connection to reality, but I'm just going to give it as an example so we can understand the point, okay? You know, uh, I'll take another example that probably most people here are familiar with. In the beginning of horizontal society, Chacham Fa'ur, at the very end of the introduction, gives a story about, he calls it the temple cat, Okay. Uh, um, if any of you are familiar with this, and it's 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 hilarious and sarcastic. My favorite part of the book. Sorry. Yeah, and it's 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 it, it perfectly encapsulates what we're trying to say here. Um, I'll, I'll even I'll just read it to you because because it's. I so, think it needs to be read. Please read yeah, it. I'm gonna read it. I'll read it. So it says like this. It's a short paragraph. Um, okay. Once there was a master who would give classes on high philosophy and love of God. During these classes, the temple cat would crawl affectionately into the laps of the students, distracting them. So to help their concentration, the master would tie the cat to a tree outside the temple and then release him after class. One day the master died, passed away, but his successor continued to tie the cat to the tree out of devotion to the memory of his master. Sometime later, the cat also died and another cat was procured and tied to the tree during the class. The next generation of the lineage began to debate the spiritual powers achieved by tying a cat to a tree outside the philosophy classes. And the next master in the line wrote a thick book of theological speculations on the essential esoteric practice of cat tree tying. The following generation, of course, changed the lineage of seal to an emblem of a cat tied to a tree. So again, you see, right? It's unreal. We, we, you know, you, you can never predict where one seemingly innocuous change that you make is going to end up. So, therefore, the second half of the Mesirat Yisharina I quoted, look here in source number four, Me'ata, from now that I've told you this, but Daihu, it's certain, the exactness that you must practice, Torah mitzvot, it must be the most exact you could possibly make it. So he's saying exactly the same way that, you know, you go to a diamond seller and he's measuring the very, you know, last milligram. That exact way that you're measuring those diamonds and precious pearls is how you should, is how you should be exact in your, in your keeping on the mitzvot. Why? What you're doing here is building, you're building a life, a life in the world to come. And you don't know, you know, you do something weird down here, up there, you're going to get a window in the, in the middle of the door or something. You don't know what's going to happen, right? So you want to make sure that you're, you're keeping the mitzvot is as exacting as possible, okay? So if we're summarizing the first section, what we're saying is, the covenant is important. It's the only way we have a, of accessing God. The way we have of accessing that covenant is through Torah Shabbat Peh. Torah Shabbat Peh ended with the Stimata Talmud, with the, closing, with the closing of the two Gemaras. And everything after that is essentially giving your best argument. Okay. 
So you might say to me, okay, I hear, fine, but why can't, you know, I was given, uh, you know, I was blessed with, with Sechel, and the Rambam says that Sechel is what's the, you know, this intelligence, this rationalism, however you want to translate it, is, is the defining characteristic of humanity, and it's what connects us to God, and it's the Tzerem Elohim image of God that, that's imbued within us. Okay, that's true. But I, I, I'm going to pause here, and I want to put something on the screen. Um, one second, and I want to ask you, if you can, to um, respond to the question either in chat or out loud. Uh, let me one second, let me just pull it up. If you're familiar with this, by the way, please don't ruin it um, for everybody else. Okay, here we go, one second. Okay. Right. Can everybody see what's on the screen now? Okay. I'll read it to you, and I want you to answer the question. Linda is 31 years old, single, outspoken, and very bright. She majored in philosophy. As a student, she was deeply concerned with issues of discrimination and social justice, and also participated in anti-nuclear demonstrations. Now, the question. Which alternative is more probable? Linda is a bank teller. Or Linda is a bank teller and is active in the feminist movement. Now, please uh, shout out, write in the chat. Uh, tell me what you think. I feel like it's going to be B, just because we tend to categorize people. We box people. We B is what? B is bank teller and active in the feminist movement, or just bank teller? Yeah, yeah, because that that represents uh, other um, virtues in keeping with her anti-nuclear credentials, etc. Okay. Well, I feel like there's a gotcha coming up. Of course, there's a gotcha. <laughs> Anybody else want to chime in before we give it away? <laughs> All right, so most people I see here said option one. You guys are, are, are smarter than 90% of undergraduates. Uh, if you're familiar with Daniel Kahneman, Daniel Kahneman, the, the author of Thinking Fast and Slow, which he himself, by the way, recently discredited as mostly wrong because of the replication crisis in psychology, but that's another discussion, ran an experiment. And now let's, I, I'm, I'm going to share the screen again, and, and I'll explain to you why um, option number one is the true answer here. Because what I asked you was, which is more probable? Okay, there's more of a chance of her being a bank teller, because a bank teller also includes being active in the feminist movement. But it also includes other probabilities, other hobbies, right? So being a bank teller, okay, is... Um, um, inclusive of being active in the feminist movement. So if you think she's just active in the feminist movement, what you're essentially, what's happening to you, so explains um, 
so explains um, uh, Daniel Kahneman, what's happening to you is that you're being blinded by what's in front of you. Okay, he calls this, what you see is all there is, right? And the idea is that human, humans are very, very, very affected by perception, okay? Um, and, and because of that, and, and here we segue into the Rambam, we must be very distrustful of ourselves. Our rationality and our sechel is important. And it's the only tool that we really do have to move around in the world. And it's incredibly powerful, right? There is only one place in the entire universe, as far as we know, right? There could be aliens, but Nagida, there weren't. That reaches zero Kelvin. And it's not in space. It's in a fridge in Stanford University. We did that with our brains, okay? You can have a guy like Einstein sitting in some random planet in a corner of the universe with his brain predicting the existence of black holes, understanding what they must look like, how they must work, understanding gravitational shockwaves that it would take another hundred years to prove a conjecture he made that he literally from his own brain. So our seichel is very powerful. I'm not saying it's not, but it's also very, very dangerous. It doesn't work the way we think it works, okay? Uh, an analogy that I heard once is that sometimes our minds can be like a Ferrari in reverse. So we have to be very careful. And the Rambam himself says this to us, okay? He opens up Hilchot Abadazarah with a long story the Ram doesn't normally tell stories in, 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 in the Mishneh Torah. He tells stories in um, uh, the Perusha Mishnayot. He tells stories in the Moen Nebuchim. He doesn't tell stories in Arachot, unless they're relevant to the Halakha. And he, here he tells an entire parak worth, an entire chapter of stories. Look how he starts it. Source number five. So in the days of Enosh, Enosh was one of the early humans that's related to, uh, that we're told about in the, in the Torah. Ta'ut gadol. They... Um, um, they made this incredible um, uh, mistake. Okay? What mistake did they make? So God made all the stars in the heaven and he made this whole universe and it looks fantastic and he put these stars in the heaven. Okay? He put them high up. And he gave them honor. And, right in the Rambam's uh, 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 physical model, they're closer to God. Okay, they are the shamashim, the servants that are serving God. Okay, therefore, you know, one and one is two. I'm going to put these two things together. Says you know the the generation of Enosh, and I'm going to serve these things because God gave them kavod. Then kavachomer, I need to give them kavod, right? Because God is much higher than I am. And he goes on to explain that essentially this was the foundational error of Abudazara. Okay, we started to think for ourselves in a way that was wrong. We drew the wrong conclusions because we didn't know what we were looking for. Why didn't we know what we were looking for? Yishayahu tells us, source number six, this we have to understand this point because it's, it's the only point that matters here. Okay? 
how do I know what you feel? How do I know what's going on in your mind? The answer is, I don't. I don't. But I know what's going on in my mind. And I know that you're like me. You're human. Okay? And because you're human, I know that most of what I experience is what you experience. Most of what I feel is what you feel. We feel the same types of things in the same types of situations, especially if we're from the same culture. I form what's called a theory of mind about you and how you're thinking and how you're feeling. And I'm able to form that theory of mind because I know that we're essentially similar. God is saying here, I am not like you. I don't think like you. I don't act like you. Okay? We are not the same. We're not similar. You can't use your theory of mind of human beings on God because it doesn't apply. There's no, there's no mean shock. There's no uh, uh, connection point between humans and God. And so therefore, no matter what, we say, oh yeah, you know, if I were God, this would be really nice for me to have done in my religion. So I'm going to put it into Judaism. No! You can't do that because you don't, you don't have the ability to alter the, 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 the instructions that God gave us. So th this, this, you know, this idea is, is, is critical. There's no way of us accessing God's brain. There's no way, right? Okay, I'm not a heretic. There's no way of us accessing God's uh, uh, thought process. We don't have access to it. And now I want to show you, from inside the, the words of Chazal themselves, how even somebody like Abraham Avinu, who we're going to get to soon, can fall into this trap. Even somebody like Abraham Avinu, even a Navi. Okay, um, uh, just so I know where I am. What, how, when do I need to finish, Sina? When you're ready. Are people okay if we go past 11.30? Yes. Okay, all right. If you're not as long okay, as it's not too much, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. If and, and if you need to leave, you can leave whenever. You can leave now. You can leave before, whenever. So what's the example of Abraham Avinu um, um, falling into this trap. The example is Akedat Yitzchak. Okay? So let's see. First of all, we know the famous Moran of Uchim that uh, uh, the reason that, that, that Abraham was tried in such a trial was to show us how much love um, um, Abraham had for Hashem and to show us uh, how much certainty, which is the enemy of true service of God, how much certainty Abraham had in his vision. Let's read the Moran of Uchim. Source number seven. So he first of all says, I want to show you the, the level of incredible love that Abraham had for, for Hashem. And so then he switches to the second point. So if the Nevi'im were doubtful about their visions that they received in, in uh, um, their prophetic dream, or they thought that maybe they weren't necessarily seeing the right things in their prophetic vision. They wouldn't do such 
such a thing that our natural inclinations are so deep. They're like, you know, when the stove is hot and you put your fingers on it, you fly backwards. That's how you feel, right? It's this, this visceral rejection. Child sacrifice? Oh my goodness. But Avraham, says the Rambam, was blinded. He was blinded by love and he was blinded by certainty. Okay? And he trusted that love and that certainty to carry him through. And it, it, it got him to the point where look at the Midrash. The Midrash in Tanhuma says like this. Um, it's a, a half a quote from a Pasuk in Yirmiyal. I didn't command this as Hashem. I didn't say it. And I didn't even think about it. The Midrash says like this. I didn't command this. Chazal never read the Torah. That's what the Pazik said. What do you mean I never told you to do this? What do you mean? That's what the Midrash says. Avraham was never commanded to shek his son. What Rabbi Binovich explains in source number nine, and he draws it from the end of this Midrash here. Let's just read the last uh, underlined pit. So we're familiar, right? There's a story, Yiftach. Yiftach was a general that we're told about in, in Sefer Shoftim, and he made, a, he made a, a vow to God that if he were to win this war, the first thing that steps out of his house will offer as a sacrifice. Of course, who steps out of his house? His daughter, okay? And uh, he goes through with it, right? And there's a lot to be said in this Midrash about, about that story. But essentially, what is the Midrash saying? Why did Yiftach do this? Shelo karab Torah. He didn't learn Torah. If he had learned Torah, he would never have killed his daughter because the Torah says very clearly, I don't want child sacrifices. I don't want it. All you do is open up. It's there black and white. So the, what the Rabbi Noach explains is that Avraham, Avraham came from a particular um, um, cultural and social context, right? We're going to read in the next source that Abraham was himself an Oveda Vadazara. He himself worshipped idols at the beginning of his life, okay? He came from this society where child sacrifice was the norm, and therefore he understood what God was telling him through that lens, right? And he didn't have a Torah to walk back his understanding. God told him, bring him as, a, as an offering, okay? He didn't have the, 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 the tempering nature of the Torah to walk him back from that understanding. And so says Harav Rabinovich, Zichonali Vachad, the Rosh Hashiva here, Male Adumim, who just passed away. Why was God try, trying him like this? He wasn't just trying, like the Rambam says, to test how, how certain he was about his, his prophetic vision. In order to get the truth out of prophecy, you must view the prophecy through the lens of Torah. If you're not viewing the prophecy through the lens of Torah, i.e. the lens of the covenant that we've been talking about until now, then you're going to end up sacrificing your kid. And a God's going to say to you, I didn't ask for that. Why did God do this to him? So Abraham will understand. It's impossible to trust your intellect alone. You need Torah. 
There's no private prophecy that can supersede the Torah. And so therefore, even Avraham, who we're going to see, we call the Shir Avraham's razor for a reason. Even he could fall into this trap. We could fall into this trap. Avram lived, you know, uh, 3,500 years ago, 4,000 years ago. We're very far removed from, from him and his way of life and his challenges. We're very far removed from that gadlut. Okay? If he can make this mistake, we can. How do we fix it? Right? How do we fix this? What tool do we use to cut away the chaff? Okay, so first of all, we're all familiar with this idea. The Ramah brings a summary of all these different midrashim here that uh, Avraham, uh, let's just pick out a few uh, key bits. He says, So he was, like everybody else, an Obed He was inside this environment. He was an Obed His father was an Obed right? Okay. So he says he uh, he what he realized was that things weren't right. Something was off about the entire story. Okay. And let's see this incredible midrash. We're we're familiar with the midrash, but it's worth it's worth seeing inside. Okay. So um, I'll summarize the inside outside. Um, he says like this, right? So, so somebody came into Avram's, uh, Avram's father had an idol shop, and he had to run an errand, so he left Avram in charge of the shop. Okay, somebody comes in with a flower offering, and says to Avram, some some woman says to Avram, please give this flower offering to your idols. So, what does he do? He smashes all the idols. Okay, puts the the hammer in the hands of the biggest idol, you know, the biggest uh, 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 statue, and puts the flower offering in front of him. Father comes in, he thought, oh my goodness, what happened? So he says to him, oh, well, so this woman came in and, and she gave the flower offering and then just, you know, all hell broke loose. This guy started being that guy. He wants to eat it first. He wants to eat it first. So Amrafal looks at him and he goes, tell me, are, are you being serious? Like, you and I both know that these things are inert. So he says to him, do your ears not hear what your mouth just said? They're inert. What are you doing? He takes him and he goes, I can't deal with this kid. You take care of him, Nimrod. Right? Nimrod is Avram's arch nemesis. So he says to him, okay, bow down to the fire. Avram says, I can't bow down to the fire. I'll bow down to the water. The water puts out the fire. Fine. Bow down to the water. I can't bow down to the water. Okay. The clouds hold the water. So fine. Bow down to the clouds. No, I can't bow, can't bow down to the clouds. The wind moves the clouds. So bow down to the wind. I can't bow down to the wind because the wind can't move humans. Nemo says back to him, I don't care, but I do something. Every time Avram says, I can't, I can't, I don't, you know, this doesn't make any sense to me. And at that point, right, he says to him, poof, into the, into the, the Kivshana Esh, into the fire furnace, we'll see how your God deals with fire. And obviously, we know the story, Avram comes out. So Avram used Avram's razor. What's the minimum that I need to be doing here? What are you, what are you telling me? Are you telling me Let me cut away at it. Let me scratch to the surface. Let me scratch down underneath. Let me get to the bottom of this. What's actually happening here? Right? Why did I call this this Shir Avram's razor? So there was a guy named William of Akam. Okay, and actually he wasn't even the first one to put this uh, theory into uh, words. Actually, if you skip to the top of the page here, it's actually Aristotle is one of the earliest people. He said, we may assume 
the superiority, other things being equal, of the demonstration which derives from fewer postulates or hypotheses. In other words, the simpler the explanation, the better. And that's what Abram's all about. The less religion, the better. The less doing stupid things, the better. The less doing things you made up in your own mind, the better. Okay? He even does this to God. So don't just tell me he does it to Nimrod and to the idols. He does it to God. The Pasuk says, God appears to him in the fields, the orchards of Mamre. We'll see who Mamre is in a second. Right? This is the story of the angels coming to visit him. We're all familiar with it. The Midrash says, why would see in Elonei Mamre? Why would see in this orchard? Avram didn't want to listen to Hashem. Hashem goes to him, listen, I have this, it's a little weird, okay? Um, I, I want you to um, make a sign on your body that you're committed to me. No problem. Um, a tattoo, where do you want it? My forehead, on my arm? Uh, how do I say this? Not a tattoo. I want you to uh, cut off part of yourself. Okay, a finger, a thumb. Actually, it's, um, you know, I was like, what are you talking about? This is weird. This is not right. This is this is religion. I don't want religion. I escaped. Kinshana asked for religion? No. Leave me alone. And he goes and he takes advice from Amre. And Mamre says to him, listen, you know, all things considered, this is God. He does speak to you, you know. He did show you all these grand visions, you know. Maybe you should listen to him. So Avram, okay, he acquiesces. But this is Avram applying Avram's razor even to God. I am not going to do more than I need to because when I do things that are religious, I end up bowing down to the sun. I end up bowing down to the moon. I end up with a temple cat. And these things are not what I need to be doing. This is not how I relate to God. Temple cats, bowing down to the sun, all sorts of weirdness, okay? Praying on the ninth day of the ninth month of the ninth hour. This is not religion. This is not serving Hashem. This is religion. This is made up. This is not what we do. Right? And this is the idea. At the heart, at the heart of what it means to be a Jew, to be a Torah-observant Jew, is to be epistemically humble. To, to always be skeptical about somebody telling you something new. You tell me I have to do something? I'm willing to listen, but you need to prove it. Okay? And, and it's not surprising, by the way, that Avraham fell, in, fell into this trap that we described here with, with, with uh, Akedat Yitzchak, right? Akedat Yitzchak was his last nisayon. It was his last test. And it was at the end of his, of his development. And we know that towards the end of your life, because of the nature of humanity, you get stuck in the ideas that you've devoted your life to. And one of the clearest examples of that that we can that we're close to is Einstein. Einstein, and he writes in a letter, and, and, and again, he did modify this opinion, but he held it in some fashion or another towards the until, until the end of his life. He couldn't accept quantum mechanics. He couldn't accept spooky action at a distance. He couldn't accept quantum entanglement. It, 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 you know, he says, these are his words, the theory produces a good deal but hardly brings us closer to the secret of the old one, i.e. God. I am at all events convinced he does not play dice. 
Einstein himself, the master of physics, couldn't deal with the new developments at the end of his life because he was wedded to his old theories. This is what we have to run away from. We can't ever get wedded to the truth, capital T. It doesn't exist. We're not interested in it. Okay? And, and, and to, to, to put this idea very succinctly and beautifully, we're going to turn to David Deutsch. David Deutsch is a philosopher, uh, sorry, a, well, he's a philosopher, but he's a theoretical physicist at Oxford, and he was a student of Karl Popper. So he writes like this, the misconception that knowledge needs authority to be genuine or reliable dates back to antiquity and it still prevails. To this day, most courses in the philosophy of knowledge teach that knowledge is some form of justified true belief, where justified means designated as true or at least probable by reference to some authoritative source or touchstone of knowledge. Thus, how do we know is transformed into by what authority do we claim? The latter question is a chimera that might well have wasted more philosophers' time and effort than any other idea. It converts the quest for truth into a quest for certainty or for endorsement, either a feeling or social status. This misconception is called justificationism. We call it avodazara. Okay? The opposing position, and I'll read you an incredible uh, uh, Rav Cook. Uh, actually, I forgot to put my source sheet, but it just came to mind now. The opposing position namely the recognition that there are no authoritative sources of knowledge, nor any reliable means of justifying ideas as being true or probable. So we don't agree with this 100%, because as we said, we do recognize revelation on some level, but minimally. It's called fallibilism. To believers in the justified true belief theory of knowledge, this recognition is the occasion for despair or cynicism, because to them it means knowledge is unattainable. But to those of us for whom creating knowledge means understanding better what is really there and how it really behaves, and why. Fallibilism is part of the very means by which this is achieved. Now, I want to tell you, the Rambam himself, in my opinion, was at least in some aspects of fallibilism. Okay? He writes himself that were somebody to prove to him in, in that, that the universe was eternal, okay? he would go to the text of the Torah and reinterpret. Right? So he would use reality as his guide. He would not pull the wool over eyes. He wouldn't say, oh, justify true belief. The Torah says something, so we have to listen to it. No. The Rambam says, I'm going to let truth dictate my beliefs, not religion. Fallibilists expect even their best and most fundamental explanations to contain misconceptions in addition to truth, and so they are predisposed to try to change them for the better. In contrast, the logic of justificationism is to seek and typically to believe that one has found ways of securing ideas against change. Moreover, the logic of fallibilism is that one not only seeks to correct the misconceptions of the past, but hopes in the future to find and change mistaken ideas so no one today questions or find that no one today questions or finds problematic. So it is fallibilism, not mere rejection of authority, that is essential for the initiation of unlimited knowledge growth, the beginning of infinity, i.e. I would put it this way, the beginning of the connection to Hashem. Hashem's, the, the Chazal tells us, Hashem's chotamo, his, his sign, his signature ring, is truth. Emet. Okay? God is not scared of your theories of evolution. God isn't scared of um, your theories of quantum mechanics. It doesn't challenge him. Okay? God made the thing for heaven's sakes. 
the author of the universe is the author of the Torah. They are one and the same, and therefore we can't run away. And I would add to what uh, David Deutsch says here is that this attitude of fallibilism also injects what we said before, as I mentioned this before, this idea of epistemic humility. I know that what I think I know now is necessarily wrong, probably very wrong. And I know that most of what there is to be known is undiscovered, right? I'm at the beginning of infinity. Infinity goes on forever. I'm at the beginning of this process. And I will always be the beginning of this process, right? Because every time I learn something new, it opens up new doors, which then open up new doors in turn ad infinitum. So because I have epistemic humility, I don't walk into somebody's shiva and say it's all for the best. God works in mysterious ways. The tapestry, you have to understand the tapestry. I don't say these things because they have no meaning. They don't help. And, and for all I know, they're wrong. I don't make predictions. I don't say, I don't, I don't, I don't give causal explanations. I just don't know. When you accept this idea of looking at the world, you become much more humble, much more down to earth, much able to connect to somebody. Just on this, on this very point, um, there's a story in the Gemara of, of I, I want to say it's the Amorayim, but it might be Tanayim. I don't know. One of the Amorayim lost his son. And I think it was a Yochanan. And his colleagues come in one after the other and they say to him, don't be sad, don't be sad. I lost a son, I did this, I did that for the best. All these, you know, packaged explanations. And then at the very end, one Chacham comes in and, and I'm, I've forgotten who it is. Maybe Ben Azar, but I have no idea. I could be wrong. And as he comes in and he says to him, be proud of who your son was. Be proud that you raised a son like this. Be proud that, that he lived such a wonderful life. And he says to him, you've given me nechama. You've given me true uh, uh, comfort, a different perspective. Because he didn't try and offer him explanations that he didn't have. He tried to point him to the value of his life. Okay. And he understood that. But he didn't come in with, with, with useless platitudes. And, and, and more than this applies to the Hashkafic aspect of it, it also applies to the Halakhic aspect of it. Okay? You want to tell me that I do something? Prove it. You want to tell me I can't do something? Prove it. You want to tell me that I have to, uh, I don't know, pick, pick, pick something that, that bugs you. You want to tell me I, I can't eat kidiot? Why not? Right? I have to put on two pairs of tefillin? Why? I have to put on Rabbeinu Tam? Why? Whatever. Insert thing here. Whatever it is, that's what we have to ask the question. How do you know? Okay. And for whoever was in, uh, and, and here I'll end and, and, and open the floor for questions. Whoever was in the shiur with um, uh, Moshe Halbertal, right? He was describing three different schools of thought about the transmission uh, and why there was machloket and, and, and is machloket a necessary part, a desirable part of the system, is it not? And they did the, you know, those three schools of thought. And I asked him a question that he didn't understand. And I said to him, how do they know? And he said, oh, well, you know, this one has this source and this one has this source. And I said, and, and my question was deeper than that. How do they know which source to value? If you have three different sources, how do you pick which one is right? How do you show up and say, this is what the Torah believes and not that? When there are many other different perspectives that you could possibly take. 
at the very most you can say, I think this might be right. But there are other things to say that I'm wrong. I may be 50% sure, 70% sure. The problem is that we don't live our lives like this. We don't treat the knowledge that we have as uncertain. We don't treat the knowledge that we have as um, conjecture. We treat it as fact and we fight about it. And we go to war over it. And it makes no sense. Now, I'm not proposing to be a postmodernist that there is no truth. There is absolutely a truth. And you can have your very held, your very strongly held beliefs, but, but hold them loosely and be willing to change. Be a fallibilist. Because being a fallibilist and understanding that you're never in the right place with service of God, and you're always growing. And this is what Hashem wants from you. Changes your entire experience of the world, of Yahadut, of Torah, uh, uh, of, of everything. You're no longer scared. You just want to know the truth. Whatever it is, wherever it comes from. Thank you very much. I think that should be the motto of the Habura. Be a fallibilist. Don't be scared of the truth. I love it. Uh, has anybody got any questions? Uh, you can leave the, either put them in the chat box or please do unmute and ask away. Can you leave the Habura open for a while just in case there are inter-participant um, questions in chat, please? Absolutely. Anybody? Thank you, anyway. Um... Brilliant. Well, I've got a question. So, so, oh, so go on. if you don't mind, Sorry, Sina, just, uh, at, the, at the end of the day, what does it mean? What was the, the plan of God? I mean, uh, if, we have, if we can have the beginning of a question, why did he bother coming up with the Torah, coming up with all the generations of Chachamim, etc., if at the end of the process we don't know anything? So I have an answer to this question from a human perspective. Obviously, it's impossible to say anything about God. Okay, I'm not, I don't know why God does anything. But um, what, we can, what we can understand, what we can learn from it, I think is that, um, and, and this is a more involved idea, maybe it's even another shear, we'll have to book it in. But, uh, but the idea in one foot is that there is one thing that God can't create. Okay, and that thing is you. Because were God to mechanically create you, you wouldn't be you, you'd be a robot. And so God has to allow for, uh, if he wants free relationship, if he wants somebody to be not in a forced robotic, I have to be in a relationship with you because I'm a robot, you made me, so therefore I'm going to talk to you. But if he wants people to be in a free relationship with him, he needs to allow them to develop and get to that point themselves. So therefore, creation is essentially free in the sense that God's sitting there waiting to see what comes out of it, right? So the, the Gemara in Chulin, for example, says that, um, that the creation was created with its own permission and in its own, uh, uh, its form was decided by itself, which obviously is self-referential. How can you create something and ask it how it wants to look? And essentially the idea there is, is that we are involved in that creative process. That as we are living, we're involved in that creation. We're creating ourselves. And ultimately our purpose is to turn to God and say, hello, I'm here. 
I am a free being that's arisen out of your creation, and I want to connect with you. That's not something God can create. Okay, but did he have to give such a big book just to say that? Because the rest, we don't know how to interpret that book. It, seem, it seems like it. And, and, and I don't know. It's a, it's a waste of time of everybody, no? So I don't think so. I mean, I mean the Rama obviously gives very many different interpretations for the reasons for the mitzvot. Uh, and why each mitzvah is relevant and why it was relevant then and why it continues to be relevant now. Um, I think that's a dangerous game to play for some of the reasons we've talked about here. But I do think that God didn't give the Torah in a vacuum. Okay? It's a very, um, um, if you're familiar with this idea of a genotype and a phenotype, right? You have the DNA, yeah. the genes, and then the way it expresses itself in the world. Okay? Mm. Our Torah is a phenotypical Torah. It's a Torah meant for human beings on planet Earth. Right? You go to the next planet around the, around the corner in the galaxy and you give them the Torah, they're going to say, what is this? This is gobbledygook. I don't have pigs. I don't have a son. I don't have any of these things. How can I fulfill this Torah? The Torah obviously is a, a Torah made for humans on earth. So God saw, okay, there are humans here. Okay, I want to give them the Torah. The Torah has a DNA, right? Black fire on white fire. 900 and whatever generations before the world was created, all these different ideas that there's a DNA of Torah, but then there's the phenotype. There's the Torah itself brought down to the human being by God. So I think the answer to your question is God looked at the world. He saw that there were humans and he said, what did these humans need to serve me, to have a relationship with me? And he gave us the Torah. Okay, so what does the Torah mean? We don't know what the Torah means. So what did he give it to us without the meaning? We do. No, we, he did. He did give us the meaning. We lost what, it. What, what, what do we know? We lost it. We know the meaning. The meaning is Torah Shabbat. Ah, said, right? We lost it. So, so okay. So yeah, for the... Said. We lost it. Okay. So for all the subsequent generations, I mean, it's just a waste of time then. No. So for the subsequent generations, you can do and you can be invested to the level that was already revealed to you through the Torah Shabbat up until the closing of the Talmud, which is why, by the way, every single shoot, doesn't, the guy doesn't show up and say, okay, you ask um, uh, Ramosha Feinstein a question, he doesn't show up and say one line, uh, so I got your letter, and the answer is this, and then he sends it back. It's not one sentence, right? It's, uh, it's, uh, a, full, it's a full exposition of, here's the Gemara, Here's what I think it says. Here are the Rishonim, and here's how they understood that Gemara. Here's what I think that means, and here's what I think you should do. But he's making a legal argument. He's saying, don't, don't take my word for it. I'm not telling you what to do based on authority. I'm not creating law by fiat. I'm saying, this is what I think the Gemara is saying. Why is he doing that? Because he knows the only real source of authority is Gemara. Can I just say, please, thank you, Rabbi. Yeah, I just think that the Hasidim get around it by talking about the notion between linking the emic and the the internal and the external, or the big external, by using the phrase uh, nefesh elokit. So if you've got that spark of godlessness in, in you, that's how you can make the connection. I think it's a construct that was created to get over that problem. Okay, my my only question to that, and I'm not familiar with the, with that with that uh, um, idea, so I can't respond to it. In terms of its content, but what I can ask is, how do they know that? What well, what is their what's their basis for saying that we have a nevasherokit and never we can use it? How do they know? Then they develop this whole um, topography of the different levels of the neshama. 
Right. And how do we know about the neshama? The Rambam doesn't talk about the neshama in terms of something spiritual, right? He uses an Aristotelian framework to talk about the neshama in in uh, in um, the introduction to Pekei Avot. Well, Chabad has done very well on on enrolling this out. <laughs> That's the first paragraph of Rambam of Echod Avodah People love this stuff. This is what we're talking about now. Is the hardest thing in the world, okay? But I will tell you, the Pasuk says, Tzion and Doreshla, right? Zion has no person to search after. And the Gemara says, Niklal de Baibisha. We have to be searching for it, right? Yeah, and, I think, and here, pardon? What is, that, what is that thing we're searching for? Is that inner feel-good factor? Is that little thing that makes us feel good about if being- If that's what you're after, then yes. From religious or whatever you like to call it. If that's what you're after, then yes. But but I don't think that's not how I would. Um, um, that's how I don't think that that's correct, right? And and I'll echo what Rav Salvechik talks about here. He t- throughout all of his books, really, there's a running thread of the fact that he is very uncomfortable. He's uncomfortable. He's uncomfortable where he is. He's he's a man in conflict, and I think that that's what a Jew is. A Jew is a, a Jew is a person in conflict. Yeah, but he did person. In, yeah. He didn't have the received wisdom of from parents, so to speak. He had to really think it through for himself. And I think that's the kiddush about Rav Soloveitchik, is that he actually went back to basics and he was able to look for interpretations without the being informed by yichus or by tradition or anything else like that. And that's why he was so refreshing. Was he not, was Rav Soloveitchik not from the... We didn't have from parents, whatever that means. Right. I, I just it says in his assume. it says in the uh, in the Corin Noe introduction to his works mm-hmm. that he was from a secular background. I, I wasn't aware of that. I don't know. Well, he he made such a good impact on the world that it is irrelevant whether he was from right. a secular background or not. Right. Any other questions? There was one I saw from. Nicole, where do we draw the line? We cannot exist in ambiguity. We must do something. How does this differ from the views of the Mazorti? What does that mean? I didn't understand what, the last what, bit. What, what, yeah, uh, can you flesh out your question? Yeah, it's so um, the Mazorti movement, like the conservative movement of Ashkenazi Judaism, um, it, it sees um, halakha, halakha as being like a little bit less binding. Um, and if it, uh, if there's a conflict, um, even though they accept Talmud, um, if there's a conflict, um, they always, they generally rule against Halakha. Right. So that's not, that uh, I, 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 I'm glad you brought that up because I'm, I'm, I'd like to address that. That's not what I'm saying at all. Okay. Um, uh, what I'm saying is exactly the opposite. I'm saying Halakha is all that we have. Um, the, the Torah Shabbat what's in the Gemara is all that we have. We don't, we don't have any other way to access you know, both the agadic parts and the halakhic parts, right? Um, and so, um, yeah, no, I, I think it's very different because we're not, we're not looking, we're not looking to compromise. We're looking to do what God wants, whether that's, it comes out to be a chumrah, comes out to be a kula, comes out to be a leniency or a stricture, it doesn't make a difference. The, the, those terms are meaningless in this framework because they don't, you know, it's not a chumrah that I take the garbage out because my wife has asked me to. That's not a chumrah. That's not. A, that's, not that's just part of our relation. That's how we work things out, right? Um, so again, when you relate to God this way, it's not. It, it, these aren't just 
things that you have to do. They're, they're all connected points in a framework of relationship. And so therefore, I, 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 this is where the, the fear of God comes from, right? I'm not trying to get out of my duties. I'm trying to serve God because I want to be in a relationship with him. So even if, you know, uh, um, let's take a, the wife example again. My wife's out in front of me and she's asking me not to do something. I'm not going to go ahead and do it because <laughs> she can't figure it out, right? No, uh, my wife is asking me to act a certain way. I'm going to act that way because it's part of my love for her. The same thing goes with, with, with you are and, and Ava, right? I'm not, I'm not going to try and stick it to God when he can't see me and do a, do a sin. It doesn't make any sense to do such a thing. Okay, uh, doesn't look like there's any more questions. Um, Rav, if, if I may ask, oh, if, if, I, if I may ask, okay, uh, even if we have, let's say, the Gemara, the Torah, Shebirtav, etc., at the end of the day, we saw that we see that over the past more than 1,000 years, there were a lot of discussions because the Gemara is not conclusive on a lot of things. And as you said correctly, if we do something wrong, we're taking a huge risk. Yes. Okay. So why would God, after so much effort, you know, into putting the Torah in the world, into, uh, 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 you know, educating the Chachamim to give them the proper interpretation, etc. Why would he leave us with such a danger? You know, for what reason? What is the point? So, I mean, you're asking an excellent question, one that I don't think is answerable, but... That being said, I will just say that I don't think, you know, you're pre, you are presupposing that God acts in the world in a particular way, okay? Um, you are, are taking as a given that God is actively involved uh, in a, you know, like a chess player, moving chess pieces around on the board, and therefore you have a question, well, why did he move this chess piece here? Okay? Which is a good question I in that so, but, uh, I, I don't think I, I assume he's a chess player, but I assume no, he made an effort... He made, he made a special step into bringing the Torah into the world. Okay, but at that point, Loba Shemaini. Right? The, okay, but the, danger is still, the, the, the danger is still with us if we don't interpret it correctly. Yes, of course as it you is. Say. Of course it is. But, okay, but so, just so like a father, it's not in Shemaim, but it's on earth, but the danger is on earth too. Right, but, okay, but let's say a parent, okay? A parent doesn't constantly intervene in their child's life. Because to do so would cripple the child. Mm. It wouldn't provide the child with the necessary development to become an, an adult who could function in the world when the, when the father dies or the mother dies, which inevitably happens, right? And but so there is a big difference. The, the, right? there, is, there is a huge difference. A child, when he touches, for example, something, an oven that is burning, okay, mm -hmm. he will have a, a feedback immediately, mm -hmm. okay? Now, if we don't do a sacrifice correctly, where is the feedback? How can so, we know how we, uh, if we do the, the sacrifice correctly? Okay, so if a child um, doesn't do well in high school. Yeah. Yeah, that's, a, that's not a decision with immediate feedback, mm. right? It's a decision that you could potentially circumvent as a parent. You can get yeah. a job at the family company, you know, they might not get into college, but you can get your friend to get them, whatever it is, right? So not every decision that every child makes is, is one with immediate feedback. You're right. That particular instance is. But, 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 but you, again, you specify you the case. You don't hover over your, over your child in any event and save them. But, but okay, but you specify the case where if you're a parent and you see that your 
uh, you have the, the first of all the knowledge that if he doesn't do well at school he may be in trouble later you keep telling him so where is the father in the in heaven that do keeps your, telling us that we're doing not well not so well the, entire, the entirety of the navi the entirety of the prophets is hashem saying god listen i can't tell you enough times right you gotta do what i said uh, you're gonna die if you don't do it there was no okay but okay but, but at some point god needs to let us grow up so the Navi is over. And God said, listen, guys, you're on your own now. You've got to survive. I'm I'm not going to be around for your whole life. Yeah, well, of course, we, we can survive. So, but what's so the point of mitzvot? So Hashem said, Hashem should rebuild the Beit HaMikdash for us? No, we need to rebuild it. That's on us. We need to re reforge that connection. What worth does it have if God does it for us? It's, if it's given to us on a silver platter, it loses its meaning. Let's put it this way, to, to come back to the sacrifice. We have lived for 2,000 years without sacrifices, mm -hmm. and a lot of people have lived without sacrifices and have thrived without sacrifices. So what's you the point of thrive. sacrifices? You think they've thrived? Uh, <laughs> I don't see, I look around me and I don't see a thriving society. I don't. I see society uh, that's <laughs> falling apart at the seams. I see human beings who are more damaged mentally and emotionally than they've ever been, right? Okay. Society is not, we're not thriving. We're broken. And part of the reason is exactly, it, I'm glad you brought up sacrifices because that's a lovely uh, um, idea to make this point. The Rambam says sacrifices are an extension of our, of our, of our nature uh, as humans. We need religious ceremony. It's important to us, but religious ceremony is very, is very dangerous because it can lead into all sorts of weird avodah So therefore he says, I'm gonna give you specific religious ceremonies to scratch that itch. Because without them, you're missing something in your heart. And, 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 and you can see it as we've, our society has become more intellectual, more intellectual. You know, we're outsourcing our, our brains now to the internet and we're meeting on the internet. And there's no physical rootedness anymore. We're becoming more and more sick. This, I, I think this is a perfect point to, to, to underscore what we're saying. The Torah knows who human beings are and it knows what's good for them. And it's not outdated, and it's not parochial. You, you have a benchmark for thriving that uh, I don't know where, where, where to put it, but uh, you, you might be right. We, we could thrive more with sacrifices, but we have no, no way to prove it. You're right. But because we have no way to prove it, we also have no way to make the opposite point and say that without sacrifices, we are thriving. So no, but we survive. again, I don't know. We, we I don't know what without do. sacrifices. I don't know what means for too. I can't measure the effect. All I know is Hashem told me to keep them, so I have to keep them. Beautiful. It's is it almost midnight for you there, Rav? Or is it past now? Uh, no, no, it's almost fine. Midnight. Yeah, five to midnight. It's fine. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Thank you. Thank okay. you. Thank you. Anybody else? Any questions? No more. Thank okay. You. Thank you so much. Um, really covered so much ground. Uh, can't wait to have you back uh, for another shoot.